Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about infertility treatment for women under 35. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. One of the things we do is publish multimedia guides, and one guide that we think will be particularly helpful for you will be our guide on how to choose an infertility clinic. Uh, It has lots of information explaining the process, explaining how to choose, what questions to ask, what to look for. It is a really valuable resource. Uh, To find it, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, and hover over the resource tab and click on eGuides, and it will take you right to it. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. With 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey, RMA New Jersey maintains an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program. And, of course, they also provide legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. And we have Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years, and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. On today's show, we're going to be talking about infertility treatment for women under 35. Infertility can happen to women of all ages. The question is, does treatment change depending on the age of the woman, and do the odds of success differ depending on her age? Our guest today to talk about this topic is Dr. Jim Toner. He is a reproductive endocrinologist with the Atlanta Center for Reproductive Medicine. Uh, They have offices in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as other locations in Perimeter, Buckhead, Johns Creek, and Marietta. 
all places right outside of Atlanta. We also have Dr. Lawrence Worlin. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and the medical director of Coastal Fertility Medical Center in Irvine, California. This show was aired a couple of years ago, and it is such a valuable resource that we wanted to bring it to you yet once again. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Toner and Worlin, to Creating a Family. Thank you, Don. Thanks for having us. You know, this show, the, the impetus for this show was the common, it was actually suggested by uh, on our uh, Facebook support group, there seems to be such a common perception, or, or maybe I should say misperception, that infertility is the result of women postponing trying to conceive until they're past their pre- peak reproductive years, and that is quite frustrating. It's, it's frustrating, I, I for women of all ages, but it's particularly frustrating for younger women who are struggling with their for, with their fertility. Dr. Toner, what percentage of infertility is based is solely due to age? Or if you could say of the infertility patient community, if, is it known what percentage of those patients that seek treatment um, are? Uh, is, is it because only they have waited too long, so to speak? Well, we certainly do see a lot of of that. You know that that, that women. Um, first seek help, you know, past 35, but but probably a third of my patients are, are under 35 and are are struggling for reasons, you know, really unrelated to their age. Uh, tube problems, male problems, endometriosis, there's a variety of things that afflict women who are sort of in the, the sweet spot in terms of age, so they need attention too. Yeah, they do. Uh, and, and some of this is the issue of the of the media, but uh, some of it is um, is also just. I think we as a community tend to focus more on the um, on the older women, and I'm not sure really why that is. Um, Dr. Worlam, are there? Uh, Dr. Toner has just mentioned some of the uh, differences of the types of fertility you might see in younger women. Can you can you talk more about that? If you were looking at the type of infertility that's most typical in older women, what would you see? Well, firstly, Don, I'd just like to thank you for providing this uh, educational uh, show that you do because I think that education is probably the most important thing that we can do for our patients and something that I know that both Dr. Toner and myself have done for many years through uh, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology Education is the key, and and your show is very important with respect to that. Thank you. When so you much. look at things, when you look at things like um, age, uh, the critical thing I think that that women have to be aware of is that you're born with all your eggs. So at age 25 years old, you have 25 year old eggs. At age 40 years old, you have 40 year old eggs. And it's like any other cell in your body. Those eggs age, the genetic material within those eggs uh, degenerate, and as you get older, the likelihood for successfully achieving a pregnancy will decrease. And when you get pregnant, the risk of having a loss might increase just because of the age of the egg. So the earlier that you begin to try and achieve a pregnancy, the better the likelihood is for your outcome. So again, I think exactly what you're doing is is by far one of the most beneficial things that you can do for your patients is to educate them about that. Yeah, I do think in some ways we're making progress. I, I hear more talk in, uh, when, with women in their 20s 
now. And, and, and this is even talk with people. Obviously, our community is a patient community, so there are people who are already struggling or beginning to. We often catch people at the very beginning uh, when they're beginning to realize that, hey, I'm, you know, this is not happening as quickly as I want, uh, and they go online and stop searching and start searching, and we're usually where they end up. Uh, because they find our resources in the shows and, and our support groups and things. Um, so we have people who are already knowledgeable about, wait a minute, this is not happening and it should be happening, that type of thing. But, you know, I do think that we are making progress with uh, the the women in their uh, early 20s and mid-20s now that your reproductive years don't last forever. So, um, we, we you know, it's certainly a song and dance that we say a lot. Um, if for women in their... Women, let's say women past 35, when they're past their peak uh, or, or getting past their peak uh, reproductive years. Uh, Dr. Worland, what types of fertility do you see for those women? Well, I think that uh, probably the most important thing that you can do is remember, I guess, that this is a couple's problem, that this uh, both the husband and the wife need to deal with this. And it's never just one thing. It's never just unless you don't have eggs or you don't have uh, tubes or you don't have a uterus or you don't have ovaries or you don't have sperm, then it's really one thing. But typically it's a combination of things. And our job as the reproductive endocrinologist is to try and isolate the things that could be playing a role. But I have to tell you, Don, the the most difficult thing that we have that faces us is that many times there is no single answer. Um, You know, there are so many events that really have to occur in order for someone to achieve a pregnancy that really we, we can't answer those questions. For example... You First of all, you have to ovulate. Well, I, I think we're pretty good at being able to document that. We're good at helping patients know when they ovulate. But the second thing that has to happen is that egg has to get picked up by the fallopian tube. The sperm has to meet the egg in the tube. Fertilization occurs in the tube. The embryo that forms stays there for about three days, finally comes down, floats for a day or two, and then ultimately implants. And the reality is, is, How do we know that the egg gets picked up? How do we know that the sperm and the egg meet? How do we know that fertilization occurs? How do we know they make an embryo? And ultimately, how do we know it will implant? Now, Mm -hmm. the good news is is that you can answer three out of the four questions in that if you did a process like in vitro fertilization, you get the eggs, you get the sperm, you inject the sperm into the eggs, you get embryos, and you put them back in the right place. But the reality is is that you still can't answer the question of implantation. So at least there are options that are available for them to try and answer those questions, and I, I think that's how we're improving in this. Right. Then, um, Dr. Toner, you alluded to, uh, in younger women, things such as tubal issues and endometriosis. Uh, can uh, you see those in younger women who are not getting pregnant as quickly as they think? What type of issues do you see when you say tubal issues? Uh, fallopian tubes, I realize is what you're speaking of, but what type of tubal issues do you see um, more common, or more, the more common issues that you see with tubal, uh, fallopian tube issues? Well, I think as Dr. Whirlin was suggesting, um, when we meet couples initially, we try to find those things that are uh, really high hills to climb, you know, really, really lousy sperm counts or 
or very few eggs or or obvious tubal issues. So we, there aren't many tests, but we all, we all do a semen analysis and probably a hysterosalpingogram, and um, and that identifies uh, the things that are that are going to force a change of of treatment plan. Uh, and I think in the younger women, the, the least likely problem of all is that they've got lousy eggs. Um, they may have few eggs, but the eggs, even even if their number is diminished, are only, as Dr. Worland was suggesting, you know, 25 years old. So they're they're probably pretty good. Though, um, mm-hmm. so in the younger women who've gone, you know, more than a year without uh, conception, uh, every other possibility but the egg quality is 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 in play. Uh, so we see a lot of endometriosis. We see perhaps uh, sperm that's uh, below par. Uh, we sometimes find a history of, of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, and uh, and uh, that, that can lead to subtle tubal problems, even if the tubes aren't uh, obstructed by the X-ray. They may still have suffered some damage that, that it kind of accounts for the lack of, of conception. Uh, when... Which of the which of the sexually transmitted diseases are of greater concern for uh, impacting long term fertility? I guess let me throw this one to Dr. Worlin. Well, I I think that uh, probably the one that seemed to have the most impact was probably previous history of uh, chlamydial infection, and just as uh, Dr. Toner uh, alluded to. Uh, not only can it cause significant tubal disease where it actually will obstruct the tube, but it can cause sometimes the uh, subtle tubal disease whereby there are little hair-like projections in the tube which are called cilia which help promote the egg uh, along its course or the sperm along its course. And it can destroy those cilia and make the tube, although it's open, it may not be very functional. And that's probably the one that most significantly predisposes people to having problems. It's also, isn't it also one of the ones that's least diagnosed, or at least in the past, that many people, many women, were infected and did not know they were infected? Dr. Wallace? That's absolutely that's yeah. absolutely correct, Don. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, it was one that went uh, very much under the radar uh, because some of the times there were absolutely no symptoms that occurred. And some women would find out because their partner uh, had uh, symptoms and was treated and therefore they were subsequently treated. And certainly you can look for the presence of at least exposure to previous chlamydial infection by doing blood tests that actually look for an antibody that may uh, that may be seen in the blood that's directed toward the uh, the organism. Is is the uh, is that blood test uh, fairly accurate, and or do you have many false negatives or false positives there with that blood test? Well, it seems to be that it's a fairly accurate test. The reality of the test is that, in fact, it tells you that you've previously been exposed to the uh, to the agent, and therefore you make an antibody. Now, did you actually have the infection, and did it actually cause a, a problem with respect to your tubes? That's an answer that none of us really know. But would it be a reasonable thing to perhaps... Um, prophylax that patient with an antibiotic, that is that is a likely thing that could be done. 
Okay. And we uh, got a question asking us whether uh, prior abortions would impact future fertility. Dr. Tonum? Um, no, they really don't seem to. I mean, occasionally, <clears throat> perhaps in the in the uh, pre-Roe v. Wade era, uh, infection was a was a real risk. But now, done under appropriate conditions, that's a rare consequence. But I would say only in the event of a of a of an infection related to the procedure would we worry that that it would have any negative effect on future fertility issues. You know, when one of the things you mentioned, and I was glad to hear you say, because we do, we have uh, a couple of, of, of reoccurring themes here at uh, Creating a Family. One is that uh, fertility is a treatable disease and that uh, you need to seek treatment sooner rather than later and uh, and seek professional treatment, you know, a specialist treatment uh, sooner. Don't Time is not on your side. So that's one of our, our things. And of course, the other one is, uh, which is not related to the show, and that is um, that uh, multiple births are not the preferred outcome. So those are a couple of our themes. But another thing that we end up talking about a lot is the need to have both the male and the female analyzed at the very beginning. Um, and I'm always amazed that uh, that is not always done, um, perhaps due to a reluctance of a lot of men from having to have the semen analysis, and so women taking on more of the responsibility and, and, and seeking treatment for themselves. So I was glad to hear you say that one of the things, the first things we need to do is, is analyze, have a semen analysis done. Uh, do you see, it, assuming that uh, this is talking about uh, infertility in younger women, but uh, a, a woman would be infertile if her, her, her partner's sperm is not, uh, is either is either too few or, or, or misformed in some way or, or not modal in some way, do you see different issues with younger men, um, uh, is age ha- does age have anything to do with uh, a, a man's sperm or the expectation that a man might have um, sperm, uh, that there may be a, uh, inadequate, uh, in some ways, uh, sperm analysis? Dr. Worland? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Don, because uh, interestingly, whereas women are born with all their eggs, so at age 25 she has 25-year-old eggs, at age 40 she has 40-year-old eggs, it's not the same with men. In fact, with men, uh, the life cycle of a sperm is about roughly 74 days with another 20 days or so to get out through the ducts. So every 90 days, sperm can change. So what was true 90 days ago may not be true today. The good news about sperm is that if something bad happened, something toxic happened to the sperm, 90 days from then, it could be perfect. The not-so-good news is that it takes 90 days to make it better. Now, it is true, though, that as men age, uh, sperm can be affected, but typically That's usually not until they're in their later 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s um, when they're still producing sperm that it tends to be, age tends to be more of a factor than it is uh, with women. Dr. Toner, if if a younger man, um, sperm analysis comes back showing problems in any of the areas, either in number or motility or morphology or any of the areas, is the outcome more optimistic? Is the outcome uh, the same? Does it matter that he's a younger man facing these problems versus, let's say, a man in his you know late 40s or 50s? I don't. I don't really believe so. I mean, I think you, the the prospects for for his uh, 
fertility really hinge on the qualities of the semen, practically independent of his age. There, there are some fairly recent studies showing that when men get into the 50s and uh, and, and beyond, as Dr. Whirlin was suggesting, their their children might have problems more mm-hmm. often than for younger men, even though it may not be reflective in just the semen analysis, right. things like autism and, yeah. and some uh, psychological problems. In I was going to say schizophrenia was one. I mean, I don't yeah, know how big these studies are. And yeah, whatnot. it's been fascinating. But most, yeah. most 25-year-old women aren't married to 70-year-old men, so that may be a topic for a different show. Yeah, I think you're um, right. <laughs> what we do see occasionally, and, I, and unfortunately it's getting more and more common, uh, maybe for young men who are uh, into things like bodybuilding and uh, and then the men now in their middle ages who are uh, attracted to be on testosterone because of this push re- revolving around the low testosterone uh, entity, uh, we've seen a good number of men uh, come in who are essentially sterile at the moment. You know, the testosterone um, given externally will shut off sperm production. And uh, and so some of our couples who look perfectly fit um, and are confused about their fertility turn out to have the gentleman with no sperm production um, because of taking extra testosterone. Now, as Dr. Whirlin was suggesting, that that, that doesn't mean that it will always be that way because if he then stops taking testosterone, um, there'll be some recovery in most cases. Um, not not in a week, and probably three months would be the earliest time in which you'd expect to see recovery, but, but with sufficient time, most of those gentlemen do recover. Yeah, actually, in that case, that might be a good news scenario where uh, you actually are able to identify a specific cause and a relatively uh, easily mm-hmm. treated cause. Um we got a question from Lois, and I'm going to use it as a springboard um, for us to kind of move into a discussion of treatment options for younger women. And I realize that some treatment options will not differ by age, so what I'd, uh, I'd like to kind of explore the whole idea of does age make a difference in treatment options. The question from Lois is, is IVF as common of a treatment in women in their late 20s or early 30s? We have unexplained infertility and have been trying for four years. We can't afford IVF, so feel like we don't have many options. Um, it's a pretty general question, so let's and, and we'll. It, it, your answer, I'm sure, depends on many things. So, Dr. Worland, let me start with you. Um, it, what are and this goes back, I realize, to some of the causes that that might be. Uh, uh, more prominent. Uh, we know with older women, we often will have egg quality and quantity issues. With younger women, we could have that too. We, I mean, that that can happen with younger women as well. But assuming it's not a right now for the, for the uh, for the discussion right now, let's assume that with younger women, there's no reason to believe, or this particular woman, there's no reason to believe that there is an egg quantity or quality issue. So something else is causing. Um, infertility in this um, in this woman, or in, in, in to generalize to other women, do treatments differ depending on age? Is IVF as as uh, as common of a treatment option for younger women? Uh, well, the obviously the answer is is not a clear cut answer, uh, Don. Um, I would say that really by the time you come to see a person like Dr. Toner or myself, a reproductive endocrinologist, 
typically you're going to be facing really one of two options. Um, and those two options are either the consideration for uh, intrauterine insemination versus proceeding on directly to an assisted reproductive technology. When you think about those two types of uh, therapies as being the primary therapies for these patients who have infertility, when you look at IUI, when you look at insemination, typically the real difference between that and really timing of intercourse is that you're just making sure that the sperm get to the right place and therefore hopefully if there is an egg in the tube, it meets it, it fertilizes it, it makes an embryo and ultimately implantation occurs. Um, typically, if you're going to do IUI, you'd like to put them on medication, not necessarily because they don't ovulate, but perhaps because you'd like to try, if you can, to make more targets available for those sperm to shoot at and improve the likelihood that at least one of those eggs gets picked up by the tube. But when you look at the other option, which is in vitro fertilization, you get the eggs, you get the sperm, you put them together, you see fertilization occur, you get embryos, and you put them back in the right spot. If it were my choice, and by the way, it's never my choice. It's always the couple <laughs> that have to make that decision. But if it were if it were my choice, I'd tell everybody to do IVF because you get so much more information. But it has to be something that's tailored individually to that specific patient so that they can make the ultimate choices. And you, as their physician, have to educate them and give them all the information that you can so that they can make the appropriate choice. You know, at the ASRM conference last year, I uh, uh, spoke at length with, uh, there was a presentation, and uh, afterwards we interviewed and spoke at length with the presenters, and it was talking about some of the studies that have been ongoing um, on the success of, of IUI versus success of IVF. And, and the interesting part I think we we would all predict that that IVF would have a higher well depending again on the 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 cause, but the interesting thing to me um, uh, was the that the time to uh, pregnancy and birth and and the amount of time it took you to get pregnant, as well as the cost that it took you to get pregnant, that it took the couple to get pregnant, was actually less. This is the faster faster I think it's called the faster study. Uh, out of was it Harvard um, or um, I'm trying to remember now who did that? Uh, this is a little unfair to put you, uh, Dr. Turner. Do you remember that research you made? You don't. Yes. It's fair to say you don't. <laughs> okay, can no, you, I do. I do. Uh, good. It's. I found it fascinating, and we we did a show in January actually with the same people who made the presentation. ASRM were on the show, um, and it, it's. Uh, I'd like to talk a little about that because I find it. I think that the general public does not know this information. So t- tell us a little bit about uh, about uh, success and, and, and cost of, of IUI versus IVF. Sure. There, um, this was a trial done in Massachusetts where uh, there's mandate for coverage. And uh, most That's of the insurance insurers, mandate, by the way, for everybody listening, they've heard they, they, our long-term listeners will know because we've talked about this issue. But others, he means an insurance mandate, a, man, a governmental mandate, saying that insurance companies have to provide. I think it's a couple of cycles, three cycles, or whatever, for infertility treatment. Now, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And but but uh, most of those insurance companies, uh, based on early experience in the field, 
wouldn't pay for in vitro until you had failed simpler therapy. And uh, that usually meant that you, for three cycles in a row, you had to take shots like you do for IVF, you know, 10 days of, of gonadotropin injections, uh, and then do an insemination and repeat that three times before they would grant permission to proceed to IVF. Um, and the IVF cycle is more expensive, but it's also more effective. So the question was, well, if you were doing kind of it on a cost-effectiveness basis, um, would the insurance company be better served to just allow people to go straight to IVF, or should they continue with this practice of forcing three cycles of simpler therapy first? And, and you kind of um, described the result, which is it's better all around to go straight to IVF um, because these other cycles just aren't that effective. And, and all the while, time is ticking, and you're also using shots, which are quite expensive. So you might spend three thousand dollars in, in each of those prior cycles just because of the drug costs. Uh, that was one serious uh, issue. But the other one that, that we see all the time, especially in younger women, is that cycles like that, where you're taking shots and leaving the eggs in there, just uh, putting the, the sperm close by way of insemination, uh, are not only much less effective than IVF, but they're also quite risky with respect to multiple pregnancies. In this country, almost all of the pregnancies past triplets these days come by that method and not by IVF. Uh, so it's really not an appropriate therapy, in my opinion, for young women. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, there's never been a, a, a kind of a strategy in cycles like that, to, that effectively identifies those at risk for triplets, quads, quints, uh, uh, that, that, that eliminates that risk. So um, the, the cycles in which you're doing shots, if you're not pulling the eggs you're, and you're young, you're, you're at risk for getting much more pregnant than you want. <laughs> well, you just described the entire content of my blog uh, uh, yesterday, which is exactly on the issue you're talking about. And let me make sure I'm understanding you correctly, that with, uh, and let's call this an IUI with an injectable medication, which the medications will be gonadotropins, but um, a lot of our, the patient community calls them an IUI with injectables. So with that, younger women, am I understanding you correctly, are more likely to have the production, uh, excess production of eggs uh, in that type of cycle it is harder to monitor. Therefore, with an IUI with uh, injectables, a younger woman would be more likely to turn up with a higher order multiple birth, which would be triplets or above. Correct. Much higher than than in vitro. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It's actually becoming a pet peeve of mine. I'm not. That was that that alone was what spurred the uh, the blog yesterday. Was the comments and, and this is off topic, so I won't continue here. But the comments from both the couple that conceived the quince that they didn't know how in the world they were taking fertility shots they thought they didn't know how in the world they could have conceived multiples because they didn't do IVF and then the the, the way the I know but that's and then the media picked it, exactly but yet the media was saying the same thing if you read the reports on this it was all I don't know how this could have happened they didn't do IVF so as I am smacking my head um, I, uh, that was exactly the purpose of the blog was to say you have it backwards. Right. Um, but let's say so. Uh, there is a, uh, a significantly high, and there are certainly doctors who believe that, uh, and it sounds like you are one of them. That it is very difficult to, to do a safe IUI cycle with injectables. With injectables in right. young women. 
and in our practice, we almost do none in women under 35. So we're comfortable doing inseminations in younger women if it's coupled with oral medications like Clomid or, or Letrozole, but not with injectables. And, and Dr. Worland, what would be the uh, with uh, now? Let me just make sure our audience is following this. You can do an IUI, uh, which is the same thing as artificial insemination, with nothing. You can just do it natural. Um, but usually, you will try to do something that will increase the likelihood of, I think, as Dr. Tar, I'm not sure which one of you mentioned this, likelihood of targets for the sperm. Uh, but you don't want too many of those targets. Targets being eggs, so you might take a pill version of a fertility drug, uh, clomethine, clomethine citrate or letrozole uh, are the two that I know of. Um, or you might use an injectable. We've just talked about the uh, significant risk of multiple birth with younger women taking injectable drugs and doing an IUI, an artificial insemination. What is the risk if a woman wanted to do a uh, a pill form of the medication, clomiphene citrate, otherwise known as Clomid or Letrozole, which is, is that Femera? I always say mm-hmm. that. Femera, yes. Yeah, okay. So those are the brand names. So, uh, Dr. Berlin, what would be the risk of multiple uh, births for uh, an IUI with a um, um, the clomiphene citrate or Letrozole? Well, typically, if I could just step back for one second, Don. Sure, Absolutely. Uh, when when the medications that you take obviously work differently and the oral medications work differently than the injectable medications and i i think that's important to for your listeners to understand because when you take the oral medications like clomiphene citrate or uh, letrozole you take those pills however many it is that you're taking for five days and whatever happens happens you have zero control over that, none. And when you use the gonadotropins, which are either pure FSH or a combination of FSH and LH, you as the physician really do have much more control than you do with the oral medications in that you can adjust that dose to try and get the optimal goal that you have. Now, just as Dr. Toner said, especially in younger women, sometimes it's not that easy to do uh, because uh, sometimes they'll just over-respond to those medicines no matter how low the dose is. But given the overall picture, if you have a choice, the reason to use the gonadotropins is that they are more controllable um, in someone who uses them on a regular basis. You can obviously adjust that dose based upon what you see on ultrasound as well as what you see in their estradiol levels, their hormone levels that you follow. When you use the oral medications, typically you'll see that the likelihood for a multi-fetal gestation, and again, it really depends upon the specific practitioner, but usually it's probably in the range of about 5%. And the majority of that group are typically going to be twin gestations, but certainly you can have um, higher-order multiples even with the oral medications. Gotcha. Okay. Um Let's talk. Uh, we, we got a question. It's again. Um, it, it's a little general. This is from Rhonda. She said, "When do younger women have to consider donor eggs?" Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about the the notion of donor eggs 
when you would when when donor egg it becomes the recommended treatment option um and how you might need to and when that might be considered in younger women dr Worley? uh well of all the assisted technologies that are done the likelihood for success with donor oocytes is really the best it's just the highest and it's the highest for two reasons really one is that you're using young healthy eggs to give you young healthy embryos and number two it's the one of the three situations in which you as a physician have the ability to control the environment in which those embryos go back you know there's really only three groups of women in whom we really have the ability to control that environment women who use donor eggs, women who are surrogates, and women who use frozen embryos, because in each of those three groups of women, they don't really produce hormone. We give them the hormone that primes their lining or primes their endometrium to be receptive for uh, implantation. So it is really the best group of patients to do it in. Now, who's a good candidate to do donor oocytes, especially in in your younger age group? Mm-hmm. Well, there are women, unfortunately, who may undergo premature ovarian failure, which we define as being uh, premature menopause before the age of 40. And and that can happen. You're born with all your eggs. How quickly or how slowly you use up those eggs is specific to you. So it could just be that you utilize them on a much more rapid basis than another individual may do. You may find that um, a woman who is young, that you do previous IVF cycles, and you see that regardless of how you may manipulate your various treatment protocols, you still get poor quality oocytes. This is a patient then who may also be a good candidate to do uh, donor eggs. Um, So there are any number of reasons why uh, younger women may need to u- utilize donor eggs, but I think again, you know, it's a matter of looking at that individual patient with her physician and making that very difficult, uh, you know, decision to move ahead and do that. All I would add is that uh, luckily, I think it's a small proportion of the of the young group that that end up benefiting from donor egg. Uh, we certainly see some young women who can't make the normal 15, 20 eggs that, that, that most people at her age can make. But, he, but the good news is that even with, you know, three, four, five eggs from someone who's 25, the pregnancy rates in IVF are surprisingly high. So, you know, a low reserve in and of itself um, isn't a huge problem in young women uh, because the eggs themselves are, are typically healthy. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. This show is produced with the support of our sponsors, including Cryos International, which is a New York-based sperm bank, part of one of the largest international uh, international networks of sperm banks. 
they ship uh, semen, semen specimens to more than 65 countries. Today's show is talking about, we are talking about, treating infertility in younger women. Our guests today are Dr. Jim Toner. He is a reproductive endocrinologist with the Atlanta Center for Reproductive Medicine, and Dr. Lawrence Worlin. He is a reproductive endocrinologist with the Coastal Fertility Medical Center in Irvine, California. Dr. Toner, I wanted to talk a little more about what you just mentioned, which is the it's kind of the, the are you more optimistic about the chances of success uh of of ultimately achieving a pregnancy in younger women versus in an older woman and you can define younger or older however you choose absolutely absolutely the um it, at least in the the IVF setting uh the the chance that a normal looking embryo uh turns into a pregnancy is 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 high it can be 50% per embryo in a woman in her 20s, whereas at 40, that even in an IVF setting is, you know, you're lucky if you're at, at 15 to 20 percent per good-looking embryo. So age is a, is a huge factor, uh, which gives the younger women, even if they don't have a, a large number of eggs to work with, some confidence that they may not need many eggs. Uh, so we routinely treat young women with uh, with few eggs by by the IVF route. Okay, and so yeah, so in other words, just if you are, and how do you, how are you defining younger when you're saying that? Uh, generally, it seems that the uh, anything up to about age 35 is is a good age. Uh, now, there's certainly a, a, probably from 20 to 35, there's some gradual decline in egg and embryo quality, but it isn't particularly pronounced to get to 35. All right. So the 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 good news for treatment, it sounds like, are for women, younger women who are infertile, and I realize that that is is a relative term. There's a lot of bad news associated with it as well, not the least of which is heartache and cost. But um, the good news would be that ultimately your chances of success uh, are are greater. Um, the bad news is you may not be in the position to uh, the financial position as well to be able to to afford it. I suppose. Right. The um, we have a question from Tiffany. She says, "I'm 25 with PCOS. That's polycystic ovarian syndrome. I've been told I have a good chance of getting pregnant if I just keep trying. I am not in any hurry. So should I do anything now, Dr. Worland? Let me add, uh, Tiffany and others who are listening. We have done a number of shows exclusively on PCOS, so you may want to. And we also have a resource page on that that links to our shows as well as our other resources." educational resources on PCOS, so you might want to do that. But for the today's show, her uh, question, I guess, is basically that if you're a young woman with PCOS, how do you address that? I mean, do you do you need to speed up the, the moments when you start actively trying to get pregnant, or can you wait a while? How does all that work? Well, uh, the difficult part is um, – how did they make the diagnosis, first of all? In other words, was this a diagnosis that was made because you were having difficulty trying to achieve a pregnancy? And obviously, if that were the case, then, you know, there's no question that you want to see someone um, who deals with this on a regular basis and can address it appropriately and help you to successfully achieve a pregnancy. I think probably one of the most commonly misused terms for patients that we see is PCOS. And really, 
you know, patients are given a, a handle of PCOS who may not have the disease. And in reality, it, it's very important to make the diagnosis when you say it because it's not just the childbearing years that have uh, that are affected with PCOS. It what it's what occurs in the future. For example, they're at greater risk for hypertension. They're at greater risk for heart disease. They're at greater risk for developing diabetes. And that really means that once you're done with your childbearing, these people who truly have PCOS need really good care with respect to their primary physicians who will follow them for that. I think that once you make the diagnosis, if it's made by a person that you're seeing who is trying to help you to achieve a pregnancy, then obviously the most important thing is for you to work toward that goal. And uh, if, in fact, you make the diagnosis and pregnancy is not the primary option at that point, then you can use other things that will help you, for example, the possibility of using oral contraceptives. Uh, in fact, if you're trying to be uh, use contraception, uh, those things can all play a role. So I think, you know, of all things, and I'm sure you've probably stressed this before in your shows, Don, that uh, making that diagnosis of PCOS can really have have things that affect you later in life, and I think that's critical. Yeah, we do talk about the fact that it is a chronic condition of which infertility is simply one of the symptoms and that long-term treatment and, and, and careful identification. Uh, and I think, yeah, from what I hear, I, I suspect you're very right about the fact that it is often misdiagnosed or, or, or diagnosed without having gone through the, the full list of criteria in the assessment. Here's a question from Sarah. She says, I'm 34, have had three failed cycles, I assume she means IVF cycles, with no known cause for my infertility. I've had two mis miscarriages, one natural when I was 28 and one from an IVF cycle, trying to decide when it is time to stop. We don't want to use donor eggs and are running out of money to do anything. We need to save for an adoption. Any thoughts? Um, Dr. Toner, this is kind of a I'm, I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, Dr. Whirlin, you get it afterwards. Sorry, Jim, I'm giving it to you first. I think it really depends on the individuals uh, involved um, because there's no right and no wrong answer here. Um, it, it can be very frustrating to all involved, including the, the treating team, to um, you know to provide that level of care and still not to have a baby or two to show for it. Um, but we also know that you know, from a statistical standpoint, in a sense, that's going to happen sometimes. So trying again is not a bad option. Um, you know, more of the same really might work. Um, the fact that she's had a couple of losses, I think, would would cause me to want to know that there's no other kind of underlying factor that, that would cause future pregnancies to also be lost. So I, I think kind of taking a pause and, and ruling out some things relating maybe to uh, the parent's chromosomal constitution or the uterine cavity uh, or some autoimmune factors w wouldn't be an unreasonable uh, step. But uh, it, it's a problem when potentially IVF can work and so can donor egg and, and so can adoption. And so it almost becomes a, a choice that the couples uh, mm -hmm. are left to really struggle with on their own. Uh, I can lay out the, you know, the pros and cons of all these things with them and do, um, uh, but there isn't a clear uh, winner or loser in, in any of the choices that they make. Dr. Worland, anything you'd like to add to that? 
Absolutely. Uh, I I agree with what uh, Dr. Toner uh, uh, said in that, you know, the real strict definition of someone who has recurrent pregnancy loss is someone who has three consecutive losses with their partner. But certainly, as as Dr. Toner said, I wouldn't wait for her to have a third loss before I would do the workup. So absolutely, I'd say that as part of her evaluation, she should consider a workup for recurrent loss because it could be a factor that's playing a role with respect to her success with IVF. Secondly, when you look at patients, um, uh, she falls into one of four high-risk groups of patients who are at greater risk uh, for having abnormal embryos. Women who have advanced maternal age, which we look at at 38 and older, women who fail two or more cycles of IVF implantation failures, uh, women who have recurrent pregnancy loss, and women who have uh, severe malfactor, husbands who have severe malfactor, less than a million modal sperm. In those four groups of patients, typically, they are at greater risk for having abnormal embryos. So one of the one of the considerations that you might do if, in fact, you were going to do another cycle of IVF after you did the workup for recurrent loss is to consider the possibility of evaluating those embryos by pre-implantation genetic screening so you can determine whether or not the embryos that you're making, number one, are normal, and number two, at least, genetically, chromosomally, and then have the ability to put back those embryos that are at least chromosomally normal. So I I think that those things would be beneficial as well. Here's uh, an interesting uh, question. Should a younger woman who is undergoing fertility treatment, so a woman who is is obviously subfertile for some reason, uh, and she's not having success. Should she consider freezing some of her eggs in case th- they are still trying once they get past their peak fertility years? And be, because and, and and I this is an interesting question because as you pointed out, Dr. Toner, you know even younger women their eggs are still even if they're infertile their eggs as a general resor- as as a as a as a general rule are better at at, at thirty than they're going to be at thirty nine. So, and now that egg freezing is becoming more of a viable option, um, what do you think about that, Dr. Toner? Yeah, I, we discuss it with our patients frequently uh, because I do think that um, age is a, it can be an enemy here to, to, to their goal of having their own biological children. Uh, we're seeing lots of women now who are single, uh, you know, on professional tracks um, without an identified partner coming in for egg freezing now. Uh, we even see some um, couples who um, have a couple of frozen embryos. Let's say they, they're they're young. Um, they're, let's say the woman is 33. Uh, her fresh IVF didn't work, but she's got two frozen embryos that she could use right away, and they opt not to use them because uh, if if they use them and it works, then she's 35 or six before she ever gets around to trying for mm-hmm. child number two. So instead, the, the, many couples are now sort of going and getting more eggs first and sort of developing a bank or a store of, of extra eggs or embryos, um, which would then have the quality at the time that they were collected rather than the quality of the t- at the time that they were used. 
and this is in particularly an option because we're talking about younger women. Um, but Dr. Worland, would let's say a woman, uh, you know, thirty-year-old, is going through a stimulate an IVF stimulation cycle. Why would she? Would there be an advantage to freezing some of the eggs versus freezing turn, using all the eggs to create embryos? There, there are some people. Let me say up front who. Uh, anticipate that they are going to have trouble making a disposition decision with embryos and for that reason uh, prefer not to make extra embryos so that they don't have to face that decision and that's a, a wise thing for them to do. If a, if a person is, that's not their motivating factor, would they be wiser than to freeze their eggs, uh, fertilize them and freeze the embryos, assuming they're in a relationship and they have that option, um, or, or do a half and half or something like that? Dr. Worland? Well, it's a good question, um, and certainly in the couple who you first described whereby they don't really wish to have excess embryos that they have to make some kind of disposition on in the future, mm-hmm. I think there's no question that freezing her oocytes is certainly a reasonable option, uh, any extra oocytes that you may have that you don't inject with the sperm. Um Typically, you know, the process now for freezing and thawing oocytes has been constantly changing over the years. And it seems that now with the use of vitrification, which is a rapid uh, freezing uh, mechanism, uh, it seems that the quality of the oocytes that you obtain when you thaw these are much better than the ones that previously were uh, achieved when we use the slow freeze technique. So typically, whereby in the past you'd always think to yourself, it's probably a better idea to freeze embryos because embryos freeze and thaw much better than oocytes do. Just because eggs eggs are made up about 80% of water, and mm-hmm. so you can certainly freeze them without any problem. When you thaw them is <laughs> when the you it's yeah. the thawing that tends to be difficult because those little tiny organelles can sometimes crystallize. But that seems to be much improved now with the process of vitrification. So certainly it's a reasonable thing to consider. And, and just as Dr. Toner said, you know, there are many women now who are looking to do fertility preservation, not just patients who have uh, cancers or, or or problems that make them want to do it at this point. But, you know, people, for example, like professionals who are looking, uh, they're not ready to have a family now, but yet know that they, that the age of the egg is critical. And one of the main things we hear is women have yet to, uh, from women, younger women, and women in their 30s usually, when we're hearing this, um, who have yet to find a partner. And so their choices in the past have been, if they wanted to freeze anything, um, Although some did freeze their eggs, but not as you point out, oftentimes not with good success upon thaw. But would be to use a sperm donor to uh, to fertilize the eggs, and that's not always something that what they want to do is preserve their fertility options for when they do find a partner. So that's we do hear uh, more and more. We are hearing from women who are in that boat who are um, awaiting. So, Well, we have reached the end of our time. Thank you so much, Dr. Larry Worlin and Dr. Jim Toner, for being our guests today on Creating a Family. To get more information uh, about, or to get more information about Dr. Toner, you can go to the website for the Atlanta Center for Reproductive Medicine at Atlanta 
infertility.com. And to get more information about Dr. Worland, you can go to the Coastal Fertility's website, which is, uh, handily enough, coastalfertility.com. Next week's show will be on understanding and affording fertility medications. So get all your fertility medication questions ready. Uh, and to stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility or adoption, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.